The Solid 7 Podcast is a proud affiliate of GoRuck. GoRuck designs and builds the toughest gear on the planet, including footwear, apparel, and rucks. Oh, a backpack. Like a backpack, if backpacks were made to last under the toughest conditions in the world. Mm. Everything they make is backed by their Scars Lifetime Guarantee and is tested and proven over and over and over again at GoRuck's events held all over the world and led by current and former Special Forces combat veterans. The GoRuck brand stands for Building Better Americans, the Special Forces way of life, and a life-or-death approach to building the world's toughest gear. Visit Solid7Podcast.com and click on the GoRuck link to learn more about their gear and events, and a portion of every purchase and event registration that you make will go to support us here at the Solid 7 Podcast. Here we are, back again, and here you are on the Solid Seven Podcast. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. How you doing, Joshy Poo? Good. How it's are you? Good. This is one of those uh, weeks where I guess because last week was—I mean, it was a fun episode having uh, Jason McCarthy from from Go Rec on, but it was just a, a weird one the way we did it. So nice to be doing the the podcast proper, but it makes it feel like it's been a while, though. Once again, it has not been a while for us it's been a while for our guests we have a return guest i don't know why we wait it's not a secret they saw it in the show description josh always mocks me when i do that so uh hey jason hey uh back from popular demand i know <laughs> absolutely glamoring to be back on the show it's been uh, a while jay you were an early guest i was yeah uh pretty early on i feel like um, episode seven i had to check <clears throat> earlier Uh, you guys had like the natural podcast rapport going on. So, you know, you're made for this sort of thing. That's what it felt natural back then. The, that's uh-huh. the word on the street. Well, it only ever sounds good if it ever sounds good because we're, we're fueled by uh, Jacko go and Jacko fuel in general. And uh, so cheers to you, gents. That just, Amen, that just splashed on my MacBook. That's, that's not good. So, uh, yeah, we're welcoming them back. Now, I think we, we, your billing last time was as physicist, Jason Cardarelli, which I believe gives you a bit of uh, existential angst. <laughs> you have more claim to physicist than most. How about that? Sure. I have an undergraduate degree in physics, so. I think that I, counts. Sure. <laughs> but now working on your PhD in uh, nuclear engineering, yes? Correct. What makes engineering nuclear? Um, pretty much it. <laughs> um, there's there's a couple of uh, sort of categories that nuclear engineering um, can apply to. Um, I'm in sort of a black sheep category where we study plasma physics, which could be considered physics to some, could be considered uh applied physics could be considered nuclear engineering, but generally you have like radiology, you have uh, like nuclear reactor physicists and you have nuclear measurements, which make like detectors and uh, very fancy pieces of equipment that are hard to understand how they work. Um, But that means I get to work with a bunch of people rub shoulders who are doing all kinds of different cool work. Um, People in my lab, for example, make detectors that they send off to CERN to like 
slightly improve the statistical probability of detecting like X muon in this interaction. It's very cool. <laughs> but yeah. I don't do that. <laughs> I knew like three of those words. <laughs> uh, I think when you're talking about things at that level, the nice thing is by and large, you can get away with just making up whatever you want. Oh, I made up most of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you need to start picking words. Like just repeat things that Tony Stark says in your, you know, just whatever you'll, you'll be I'm, fine. I'm qualified to do it though. So, so. uh, now, uh, we, we brought Jason back because I regularly, uh, when science is either sounds particularly cool or over my head or both, uh, then that's when Jason's phone starts blowing up from me. Uh, you know, that's when I, I bust out my, you know, the typical Michael Scott line of, Please explain this to me like I'm five, which <laughs> regularly is still not low enough. <laughs> the, the bar needs to be lower. But uh, nerd stuff aside, though, and we'll, we'll talk plenty of, of sciencey stuff. Jason got married not long ago to, to his half Japanese bride. Uh, we got married in October. Uh, what does that make this month? Five, six. That's a lot of math. Is, you're yeah. a physicist here. <laughs> when you're under a year, you're supposed to be tracking the month, bro. I think that's a thing. You might yeah, wanna, that's true. Oof. You might want to get on that. So. 4K here. But uh, um, we we got to go up. Yeah, and, uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, we, we got, uh, took the fam up and got to hang out in the, uh, the lovely Michigan. I did not get to see any lasers, nor did the ceremony include any lasers. There was no like tunnel of light. It was all very, very disappointing and yet still yeah, yeah. quite lovely. The uh, laser budget was spent on still stress. So hopefully that. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then I had the thought way too late in the evening at their uh, reception uh, to ask Jason, like, who's the smartest person in the room? Because clearly there's a bunch of like University of Michigan science people there. And I think that's the point where you're, is that, was that your direct boss that kind of walked up kind of serendipitously just as I was asking it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he was like, I don't even know how to describe him. Just like, imagine like a stereotypical, like if you were going to picture like uh, maybe I would guess late forties, early fifties, British dude, who's probably smarter than most people he's ever met in his life and may or may not win a Nobel prize. And that's the dude was pretty much a dead ringer. Whatever you're picturing, I almost guarantee you that's what he looked like as he walked up. Wow. And, and yet he was leaving, which was probably pretty good. Like probably not good for your career for me to have asked you early in the <laughs> evening and then just sat there hounding him with stupid questions all night long. Yeah. Yeah. That was my advisor. Um, I'm in a PhD program here at the university of Michigan advisor is Alec Thomas. He and and his wife, uh, Louise, Tom, uh, Louise Willingale, rather, uh, are both professors um, and their offices are right next door. They both work in the same lab group. Um, they're like an impossible standard to look up to and try to aspire to as like a budding scientist. But uh, yeah. if you were to ask me who the smartest person in the room at that point was... Um, I would have had to point to Sylvia first and then I probably would have pointed to Alec. Well played, sir. Well played. I don't disagree. She's a, a bright young lass. Yeah. But, she uh, seemed pretty smart. Yeah. I mean, you're describing like him and his wife doing the same thing, working next to each other. I'm just uh, picturing their life being an episode of like big bang theory. <laughs> what does that make me? 
do like what is the uh pre-recorded audience do when i walk into uh, the well i'm just thinking what's the one character that has a master's and not a phd and they rag him for it all the time <laughs> so for right now until you until you nail down the phd i think you get to be him which is still pretty good i mean the, the dude went to space so you got that to look forward to Oh, sweet. But uh, in the meantime, you get to answer our obnoxious, potentially high school or middle school level science questions. Yeah, let's do it. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll throw as many of them as are outside of your wheelhouse as possible. Uh, I, I can promise to answer them to the best of my ability. I cannot promise to answer them well. Now, my my... <laughs> My first one, uh, I don't know if Josh has science questions or if he's... Shockingly, you know. I do not. <laughs> Is time travel... No, and, and actually, I kept Jason on the phone for like 45 minutes last time we talked, talking about all of the reasons time travel probably is impossible or much more difficult to pull off than the movies would have it. Like, way more difficult to pull off than the movies would have us believe. Uh, but I want to start with a, a simple one, which is just... Um, is uh as was claimed right like if you're gonna ask science questions it's important to understand what science is and i i heard a claim that that anthony fauci is science now that's not that's <laughs> not exactly correct right there is a there's a stronger definition for science it's not it's not it's, it's <laughs> um to, uh the the scientific community likes to be critical of uh, how do I say this individuals uh, and be uh, the authority of individuals in the community is based on the information and the validity of their statements. <laughs> I'll say that. And, you know, Fauci and his role has like advised to the best of his ability to the people advising him scientists. It seems like he's listening to science, but the definition of science, I think, if you were to look up in Merriam-Webster, probably would not say Anthony Fauci. Okay, I'm glad we I'm glad we've settled that right. And like not like that, we were canceled. It was good knowing you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, we're good now. I, I think several weeks ago we could have been canceled just for the question, but I, right now I think we're I think we're okay. So, have you seen the meme of the kid? I think he's like in a class, and it's like he's like straining his face really hard and there's like veins on his forehead and neck and he's and it's like people usually use it as like a kind of face meme you know that face i'm talking about sure let's assume uh, we i'm do. aware yes okay <laughs> okay um there's a version of that face with someone editing fauci into it like fauci's face in it and then uh it was like the beginning of ukraine it was like when Ukraine is uh, taking over the news, when you want to sit here and drop the next uh, variant on the public or something like that, and he's just like straining, like, I need to tell people! <laughs> pretty funny. I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, I, the the comment that I saw that, that kind of made me laugh the other day, and uh, I, we should start right up front, that uh, by appearing on our podcast, Jason does not necessarily endorse anything, and well, certainly not everything, and maybe not anything that we say at any point, unless it's coming uh, out of his mouth, so... I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. I do what I can. Uh, some of this, Jason and I are uh, in particular, and I think you could group Josh in uh, more towards my side of that spectrum, diametrically opposed on all things. I would say all things social, but many things political. And uh, it's, 
it annoys a lot of people, but we actually manage to discuss those things without hating each other and still being friends. It's novel. I highly recommend it. Everyone should try it. Um, that said, I'm I love talking it out with you. Yeah, yeah. That's like, that's one of the things I look forward to at family reunions. Not like something that people around us look forward to. I bet. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I, I've we, been, I've been kicked under many a table. <laughs> I think we usually come out of those discussions, though, like uh, with a firm handshake and agree to disagree, usually. Um, But like, you know, if you don't hear like opposing sides to any uh, sort of argument or way of thinking, then you're you're like destined to always be stuck in your way of thinking, whether it's right or wrong. So, well, and the nice thing is, like, I I would say, um, like for for both of us, um, like our politics aren't even close to what define us. Um, I think we both have strongly held beliefs. I think we both have well-informed beliefs, Um, but just understand that like, I don't hate you for your beliefs. I've never gotten the vibe that you hate me for mine. And then, you know, we both also, you know, like espresso and fishing and uh, you know, (laughs) family and and whatever. Are you saying someone can get along with someone, even though, you disagree politically? It, it can be done. As I understand it, it even used what? to be. Now, hold on to your butts here, fellas. But well, I, I even think it used to be the norm. No. If you oppose me politically, we're instant enemies. Like 100%. Full stop. I'm sorry. Just to clarify. Uh, anymore. Um, if you guys, uh, it was really good talking to the audience here. Um, <laughs> see you next time. So uh, you uh, you cut out some there, but I think the uh, the joke still landed. But uh, but so yeah. So all that said, I also I, you know I, I do uh, you know respect Jason and his views and how openly he shares and how we can do that and, and still be friends. Uh, but I also am am still just always going to be a troll, uh, and so you know I have to needle him with the occasional uh, Fauci dig. Or <laughs> I I loved I saw somebody. It might have been. Uh, I can't remember who who it was, but I, if some pundit, I saw the comment uh, after Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, posted that uh, you know she she had tested positive for COVID nineteen. He's like, who who cares? It's like sharing that you have a yeast infection at this point. Just keep it to yourself. That's <laughs> gross. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, this is not your kind of science, though. If in fact any of this is science at all but your kind of science is the kind that breaks brains and is very very hard for normal dummies like josh and i to wrap our our brains around i'll I'll say myself i'll leave josh to his own self-deprecating comments so one one that's that we've discussed some a few times lately that i've been sitting on for the next time we had you on the podcast because this always drives me crazy because i don't know how you would do it better but i know it's not right is i always hate (laughs) the way like the very common visual depiction that's given to explain gravity, right? Like I, even we were watching a show with the kids. I want to say it was probably on Storybots. As a matter of fact, I think it's, I'm positive it was on Storybots. Storybots is on Netflix. Awesome show. Highly recommend. Zoe Saldana was guesting, but they're explaining how gravity works, right? And so you always have this picture of like a, uh, a, a, a heavenly body or whatever, a planet, a sphere, whatever. Sometimes it's Earth, sometimes it's just a sphere. And then you see a, a flat plane, like a grid, right? 
like like the surface of a trampoline and so they show whatever this mass is this planet this earth like if you like if you stood on a trampoline right you put a divot in the trampoline so they mm-hmm. show this uh this globe this earth this whatever putting a divot in that plane right so it puts this dip in it and they're like so then they give you a, a satellite right they give you like a, a moon or something that's like you guys ever do that thing in the mall where it's that oversized funnel and you roll a little coin in it and it rolls and rolls and rolls and it gets faster and faster and it drops down in. It's just a way to suck money out of you for whatever charity they're putting all their coins to. So that's the way they depict, depict gravity, right? Like, okay, this body has created this, this cone in this plane. And so now this other little satellite, this moon, this smaller, whatever, is just kind of rolling around in that divot. I'm like, but, but space isn't a 3d plane. So Jason, are we just being lied to? What's going on here? And oh no, we, we lost him. him. See, it's the it's the flat earthers. That's what it is. We were getting a little too close. Let's see if we can bring him back in here and not have to pull off an edit. Jason, the the flat earth hackers cut us off just as you were about to drop some <laughs> knowledge. But we have overcome uh, yeah, I'm back. I can hear you guys. All Sorry right. about that. Um, no, we we blamed flat Earth hackers. When I was oh, when, rudely interrupted. Sorry. Um, when I was cut off, uh, mall coin vending machines. You visualize gravity by your coin rolling down. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think that's something most people can identify with. If if you're old enough, I still see those things around. Um, you know, that lets the little quarter roll in and it spins faster and faster and faster. But that's the depiction they get. That's the that's the way they dumb down gravity for us rubes, right? Is <laughs> so you've got this big this big heavy thing with all this mass making this divot in. I don't know, was, was that plane supposed to rep space time and represent space time? I don't know. But it's and so you've just got like a little moon just roll just rolling around that divot, that funnel, and they're like, Oh, this is how gravity works. But like space isn't just a flat plane. Like we exist in at the very least three dimensions. So what 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 gives, man? What's going on here? Right. So uh the first demonstration you brought up where uh it's most common, I guess, to stretch out like a rubber sheet or just like a sheet in general, something with a little bit of stretch to it. Um, and they put a heavy ball, a planetary body, um, into the center of the sheet and you watch it decompress and they say that's gravity. Um, and then sometimes the second step of this demonstration is they'll take a smaller ball that has some weight to it. Um, and they will roll it onto the sheet, uh, sheet kind of tangential, but away from uh, the planet, and you'll kind of watch it follow some sort of orbity, uh, like orbity like pattern around the heavy object. And you say like, Gravity is causing orbit, orbital trajectories. Uh, so those are, uh, it, it, in respect of gravity, um, it is demonstrating those concepts pretty well. You do get a picture of space bending, which is a more accurate description than maybe like 1700s physicists would have ascribed planetary motion to. Um, and it really does put a good picture in your head of heavier objects, objects with more mass will bend the sheet more 
and therefore the effect of gravity is larger. Um, like you said, though, there's this dimensional uh, problem. Like, wouldn't it be bending space in all directions in 300 and I mean, not even 360 degrees, right? Because that I'm still just on a flat plane, but like in all directions. So in in the sheet model, uh, it's bending downwards. And in the 2D plane of the sheet, uh, if you are a ball confined to the sheet, you only see uh, front, back, left, right. That's two dimensions. The bending is in a third dimension that is outside of your perception of the 2D sheet that you are confined to. So you have no way to like really even comprehend this third dimension that the sheet is being pushed down to. Zoom out to the sun in our solar system. It's the most massive body in our solar system. Um, and according to Einstein, massive bodies uh, have the effect to bend what he described uh, as space-time. Uh, the history of the math for this, um, I did actually take a general relativity course in undergrad. Um, I can't say that I absorbed 100% of the information because it is uh, notoriously a very difficult subject to understand. But um, the basic understanding, the takeaway of the description of space from Einstein is that it is a three-dimensioned space area uh, with an extra dimension of time at every single point in space. So there's this continuous fabric. I don't really like the term fabric because it makes it seem like it's very similar to the fabric of the sheet that you're stretching out in this dimension, and it doesn't really bend in the same way. But for sort of reasons the fabric of space-time uh, does bend the three dimensions of space do bend and interact with each other and there is a physical um, there is a there is a physical bend to those three dimensions of space but also what is being bent uh, is the time dimension the sheet model does not explain the time dimension of space-time whatsoever. It's probably the, uh, the the worst shortcoming of this experiment to really describe what's happening with gravity. Um, <clears throat> as space-time bends, this isn't perfect, and please don't tell a physicist I... Mathematics uh, sort of point to uh, suggesting that the more space bends, into the time dimension uh, it is bent into. Now, I just said a sentence that probably didn't make sense at all. Um, Not only, well, I don't know if it made sense, but it did make me feel like we can make warp drives. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> uh, right, right, right. So this idea of like space-time bending, well, if it can bend, and I don't know, what are the limits of that? The ideas of wormholes uh, is where this came from. If you could theoretically, uh, so it, say you have a sheet of paper, let me just grab a sheet of paper, um, and say it goes on forever. So I have a 2D sheet of paper, and you bent this sheet of paper around so the ends suddenly touched. 
or enough of an angle so that like the infinite ends would meet each other. Well, then you made a circle um, through the bending of space time. And what were discrete points that were completely separate from each other before are now touching. And if you were at the end of the paper before, uh, sort of maybe at the end of a plane of existence, whatever that is, uh, you can now travel to the other end, uh, whereas before you would have to travel across the entire sheet of paper. Idea of wormholes. Um, now, that in three dimensions is extremely complicated. Um, this is where general relativity tends to break down um, in the limit of extremely high mass densities. These are called black holes. Um, so don't what's going on inside of a black hole because I don't know. Have you not seen the movie Interstellar? <laughs> I was going to say, this, um, this does lead to several interesting movie questions, some of them more legitimate than others. Right. But one thing that was really interesting science in Interstellar is when they when they visit the planet that's got a ton of mass, so much so that it's you know, it's warped time to the point that it's moving much slower. That's that's real. I still No, it was be- it wasn't that wasn't the reason why it was because they were so close to the black hole it was altering time, not that the planet was big. Was uh, because time is different, is relative because they were closer to the black hole, so then that made time slower there versus the guy on the ship who was further away from the black hole time went quicker for him both are true in no i'm right tell tell, tell um depending on the mass of the planet uh i mean just any object if it's massive enough to bend space time severely enough uh and you are closer to that more massive object time will be slower uh let me use the correct term there's an effect called gravitational time dilation where massive objects in uh, in order to bend space-time which uh, in effect creates the effect of gravity um, time needs to dilate it's that fourth dimension of the fabric of space-time so in order to allow the bend of space around massive objects time needs to dilate so uh, the closer you are to a massive object the more time slows down and for interstellar, that means the closer they are to the planet or a black hole, whatever is creating this gravity potential well that they're entering into, uh, time dilates with respect to people who are farther away from that point in space time. <laughs> you realize this is one of those things that you nerds break our brains with, right? Because it feels <laughs> like... You know, the the vast majority of humanity throughout all time have lived our existence here on the surface of, of planet Earth, right? Um, there, there's a, a, f- a few exceptions that if they've gotten a couple, you know, a couple miles away for extended periods of time, which they've done interesting experiments with twins who are astronauts, uh, Mark Kelly and Scott Kelly, uh, and this this time uh, variance, but. Like we, we live our lives, the vast majority of us in this existence where a a second and a minute and an hour to us are categorized in the same way as an inch and a foot and a yard and a mile or a gram or a kilogram, right? We, it's, we live our lives experiencing these units of time as units of measurements, which they are, 
But if I if I took, you know, I'm I'm sitting here with inside of my my two grandfather clocks that we've discussed here uh, on the podcast before. And if I if I if I actually sync them up, which is really difficult to do with two grandfather clocks, if I if I actually got them in sync where they were at the exact same time and the pendulums were were, were weighted properly and swinging properly, and I I took one to we'll say Jupiter. It's a nice big planet with plenty of plenty of mass. If you could do that, if it wasn't uh, you know just a gas giant and instead was a lovely vacation spot, um, <laughs> the if I was with it, like my perception of the movement of the hands would remain the same. Am I correct in that assumption? I mean, this is theoretical, obviously. That is absolutely correct. So right? I would a second, ex- I, a second is a second to you at all times. I would experience the hands moving on that grandfather clock that's with me on Jupiter the same as if I was still sitting in my dining room. But when I brought it back home to the grandfather clock that sat here, more time will have passed on the clock that was here than the clock that was on Jupiter with me. Now that's true for two reasons. We talked about the gravitational time dilation. You've gone to Jupiter. There's a that's a that's a big planet. Has <laughs> a lot of gravity, and so you've entered that sort of gravity well. Uh, you've underwent gravitational time dilation. Now, how did you get to Jupiter? How fast did you get there? Uh, I teleported. We're taking a lot of liberties here. Okay. But because so, that was going to be my follow-on question. Like, it's tough enough to, to wrap your head around the fact that time isn't constant because it just seems like it ought to be. Like, that second should be a second, regardless of where I'm at in, in the universe, known and unknown, and yet it's not. Um, and, like, this is one of those things where, uh, you know, especially these days, a lot of people get really uncomfortable with settled science. Right. And I think some scientists go too too far with settled science because like it's only settled until it's unsettled. It's only settled until we, we learn something that we didn't know. We didn't know a lot of times. Right. Even in, in your kind of science, medicine gets really tricky. Like uh, that's not me knocking them. Like I've got a close friend that's an MD. I've got, you know, several friends that work in that space. I'm like medicine's art as much as it's science. I don't envy the things they have to to learn and f- especially the practice of, of medicine. Um, but on this, we're, we're pretty confident in the math, right? Like we're obviously, we're not going to take my grandfather clock to Jupiter, but we're, but we're pretty con- confident in this concept of the ways that mass affects time. Oh, we've all but proven it. Um, satellites, GPS satellites, um, the clocks that are on board satellites. So within the orbital atmosphere of kind of, I mean, they're outside the atmosphere of earth, but they're not that far away. They're definitely still within the gravitational pull of earth. Uh, hence why they're in orbit and they're not like the James Webb telescope way. Yes. Um, they're pretty close by, but even so. They are further away from, say, the gravitational epicenter of like the surface of Earth. Uh, they undergo less gravitational time dilation. You need to calibrate the clocks on them to adjust for that 0.001 seconds every like couple of months that passes. Otherwise, the like the velocity calculations they do for objects they're measuring at Earth would be completely wrong, and their clocks for a couple different reasons, are calibrated to the space they're measuring on Earth. So their space measurements would slowly drift, and after 
We learned this in my physics class. I don't have the number on hand right now, but after a surprisingly short amount of time, uh, you being, say, in Florida, it would measure you being, say, in Washington, D.C., um, just by the fact of it having a clock that was calibrated on the surface of Earth rather than on the clock that would theoretically be orbiting Earth. Um, so, yeah, this, this is a concept that pretty much is already in practice and is affecting our lives every day. So then you try to take us, you know, start us down the path of it's not just gravitational forces. It's not just mass, but it's also speed. Speed affects time as well. And this is even, this doesn't have to be on a grand scale. This isn't like Mach 1 million. They've tested this with synced atomic clocks and just putting one on like a 747, like that amount of speed. So the, the two clocks synced, put one on a plane, fly it as fast as a 747 flies. And when it lands, those two clocks are out of sync. Oh, oh yeah, they'll be, yeah, sure. There's this famous uh, thought experiment called the twin paradox. Now we've left general relativity, which is like the gravitational stuff. And we've now entered the realm of special relativity, also Einstein's um, there's this thought experiment called the twin paradox, where if you have a set of twins the same age um, on Earth and one boards a spacecraft that leaves to Alpha Centauri and travels at 0.95 the speed of light, there stops at Alpha Centauri, spends a day enjoying the sunrise in Alpha Centauri, and then it turns around and comes back. The twin who left, uh, let me make sure I get this right, even physicists confuse this. Um, the twin who will age less quickly than the twin who stayed on Earth, and the twin on Earth will be an old person at that point, uh, where the twin who left, say they left when they were 20, might be 30 at that point. Um, so it's also... Right, relative speed. And the reason it's the twin that left is the one that undergoes uh, the effect of time dilation is because of this like acceleration, this change in reference frame. Um, it's sort of similar to saying that if you are given a certain amount of energy from your previous reference frame, it's almost like, and Einstein loved this connection, it's almost like your effects of gravity. Oh, Sylvia just gave me a cookie. Sylvia says hi. Hi, Sylvia. Hello. They say hi. You're feeling the effects of gravity. Um, and so much so, it goes to the point where time dilation is true, even if you're just you except for rocket fuel pushing you. And you'll still experience that time dilation. Now... You ever be, uh, have you ever been in an elevator and you sort, of, you sort of jolt up quickly and you feel the push downwards? You sort of feel heavier all of a sudden? Yeah, sure. Um, that is acceleration upwards. You are suddenly accelerating upwards from the frame of reference you were before. And there's a physical force pushing you upwards. But in your frame of reference, you're being pushed. You feel the effect downwards. Uh, your frame of reference is moving the opposite direction of the force you feel. And you feel that pseudo force of gravity. Technically, in that instance, you're also undergoing this time dilation at an elevator. Uh, it's really minuscule. 
So not a way to cheat death or something by going in elevators all the time. But uh, Einstein loved this point. The fact that these changes in your reference frames through acceleration are really similar to these grand scale physics of gravitational time dilation in space time. In that is why he's Einstein and we're, <laughs> and we're the solid seven podcast. So now you're a twin and I can't remember who was, who was born first. You or your brother. I was born first by 50 minutes. No one's counting. So if you spend enough time flying on planes though, you, you could, you could sneak in under him. You could become the younger twin. <laughs> I don't know how much time you would have to spend flying and how fast you would need to go, but I, you could pull it off. I can try and do this calculation. You know, if you want to post Instagram, I'll do this math and send it to you. How many times I have to fly in a plane, <laughs> the average speed of an aircraft to gain the 50 minutes equal age as Jackson or less. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be fantastic. But so tying it then back into you talking about the satellites adjusting. So I, I do know I'm I'm just barely smart enough to understand uh, orbital mechanics um, with, um, you know, low Earth orbit because, you know, we've talked about it on here ad nauseum. I like rockets. My son like ro- likes rockets. We, we've picked up some things. So orbit is literally like the, the objects that we're placing in orbit rockets science or uh, satellites whatever as i understand it uh, really they're not the what puts them orbiting it's it's different orbital mechanics than uh, a, a body like the moon as i understand it where they're actually still falling to earth they're just making sure they're moving sideways as as fast as they're falling so they never hit Right. So that's you, it. Yeah. That's a good way you, to say it. So, you know, if you don't hit, that's why if you see like our, our first fl- our space flight, right. Uh, Alan Shepard um, was, was an, was an up and down. It was an arc. He didn't, he didn't go into orbit because the, the Mercury Redstone rocket putting him, him in orbit couldn't give the capsule enough velocity so that it was moving the, the rocket, the, the capsule, the, the rocket, whatever it is, it's in orbit is it's still falling to earth, but it's moving sideways as fast or faster. It's falling. I think, uh, what, what is orbital speed? 17,500 miles an hour. I should probably know it in kilometers, but I'm American. Um, <laughs> so you think like if you're going sideways fast enough, you're falling, but you just keep missing the earth. So then you just keep falling. But if you slow down, then that's when, then you'll deorbit. You'll you'll come back down. But so these these satellites, then they're traveling, probably either right at or, or around seventeen thousand five hundred miles per hour. So are they having to account for the time dilation, both of the the difference of the <laughs> impact of the ga- gravitational forces because they're that much removed from the surface of the Earth and the speed at which they're traveling? They've got to account for both, don't they? Uh. Th- answer is yes but uh the slightly more complicated answer is uh time dilation uh, the short answer is yes i'll stick with yes <laughs> and the real and lesson the here <laughs> most present when it's yeah. accelerating when it's boosting off from earth although technically it is always accelerating because it's always falling down to earth so the full answer is yes <laughs> The uh, the acceleration of the satellite falling back into Earth and its motion 
uh, its constant velocity to the side, if you will, uh, keeping it from falling straight down. Um, both of those things take effect and both cause some slight time dilation on top of the gravitational time dilation. It just seems like a freaking festivist miracle to me that anything related to humans and space and what we've pulled off ever, ever works, right? Like just, <laughs> just, the, just the rest of us, right? The, the number of times we're working on relatively simple projects for, for work, no matter what you do, the, the number of times somebody forgets, a, oh, I forgot to do that one thing. Right. Like that's, that's common. That's, and usually that's, that's no factor, right? That's like, okay, whatever we'll deal, we'll deal with it. But this is like our, our crap. I forgot to account for the time dilation for the speed we're traveling. Okay. Well you're in, it's, you're in the, at the bottom of the Pacific now, like your satellite doesn't work either that, or like a ship is at the bottom of the Pacific because the clocks are out of sync and uh, it told you to, to zig when you should have zagged and they crashed. And now like they can't like in this realm, I feel like they can't miss anything or the whole thing's screwed, which I mean does happen sometimes, but the fact that it doesn't happen more often is mind boggling. Right. There's a reason why technology had to get to a certain point before we started putting satellites into orbit. Um, I mean, can you imagine if during World War II, like, I don't know, dictators, political leaders had that sort of, like, access? <clears throat> so, in a way, it's, yeah, it's good that technology sort of matures alongside society. And uh, well, does we, it, we're Jason? only capable of doing the things that we're capable of at any given time. <laughs> yeah. In a way, I, it's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it's not looking great for them to have access to that knowledge right now. So... <laughs> think uh, a, a reversion to steam engines might not be an awful <laughs> idea here. so yeah Kim, Kim Jong-un popping off ICBMs right now hey bro not your moment sit down right <laughs> no one has time for you right now North Korea all right just call we'll play your little games later there's a serious Gangnam style vibes in that video <laughs> have you seen that Jason I Saw a video which looked like it was satire, but maybe it, it wasn't. looked like an SNL bit, but it was but it, real. It was real. Okay. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. North Korea. I hear it's lovely this time of year. Oh yeah. And people with like scientific knowledge there and other places too, like for example, in Ukraine, the the staff at Chernobyl have been more or less forced to stay there day and night um, to make sure this uh, embrittled damaged nuclear reactor <laughs> doesn't go super critical at any point or the, the pool that it's in drains water somehow. <laughs> so it's so, well, that's... Know, they say knowledge is power, but maybe that's a uh, knowledge and excuse to, <laughs> use power against someone well that actually so you know I, I threw out a little like hey what are your science questions uh on instagram uh when when we found out you were gonna be able to, to make the show tonight and and one of them was which journal was a, a good segue a really good segue into this is one of them is is nuclear actually the cleanest viable energy source available to us right now um, and without the scientific understanding that you have with my layman's understanding 
of how um, that technology has progressed, I, I, I would be inclined to say yes. Um, and that um, the problem is that as we've experienced with two years of pandemic, that uh, the problem is that the human brain tends to be really bad on average at uh, judging risk and judging total risk. Um, and that things like Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and Fukushima loom loom large in the forefront of our heads and, and maybe carry more weight they should on the scale of evidence of risk versus reward with nuclear energy. Am I wrong? Uh, no, all of that seems pretty spot on. You know, you, you see when things go wrong, um, it's a big news headline um, and justifiably so things go wrong. It, it, it tends to be uh, a very big mess and some, some people's livelihoods, some people's lives might be damaged because of it. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the statistics show that nuclear energy, um, just to address this point first, is the safest, uh, basically per capita of incident prone. Uh, it, it is the least incident prone form of energy production. Uh, people die in oil rigs all the time. Uh, oil is a pretty combustible liquid that is freely available to a wide portion of people. So, uh, possibly, you know, that could be a reason why there's incidents there, but uh, even like solar energy, um, the mining for these products that go into solar panels, I love solar energy. It's uh, getting better and more efficient all the time too, but uh, you do need, for example, like cobalt and cobalt mines uh, are a little bit dangerous. Um, nuclear energy, usually the mines, especially these days, if we're building mines, the new uh, kind of most efficient and ideal mine designs for uh, mining uranium is called in situ. Uh, in situ. Oh, what's the last word? Anyway, they instead of like making a big conventional mine, you would think about making a mine shaft, which they used to do to mine uranium. They basically pump a liquid acid solution down directly into some uranium ore, and then they stick a well down there and pump it up like it's oil. And mm. then they separate the uranium out from the acidic solution. And they just reuse that same acidic solution and just pump it down and pump it back up. Um, the collecting almost everything you're putting down there and you're just collecting only the uranium you want. So all that's to say, uh, there's very good technology it's very well regulated and very well understood at this point um, how to work with it. So it's pretty safe. Um, and you really cannot get more efficient in terms of like energy production than atomic level energies. Right. <laughs> when you when you are taking what matter is made of and literally transforming a little piece of that matter into energy, you don't get any more pure form of energy than that. So bang for your buck energy production and efficiency wise nuclear probably is the most viable as well as the safest form of energy of any that exists right now. And part, part of the reputation of nuclear energy, sorry, you asked the nuclear engineer this question. So I got to go on a little mini soapbox rant. Um, part of the reputation hindrance that nuclear energy faces in the public is because there hasn't been any political will to build new reactor designs uh, 
nuclear physicists and engineers have been at hard at work since uh, the last reactors were built in the 1970s and 80s. Um, and there are modern, like modular nuclear reactors and like molten salt reactors that just have not seen the light of day, uh, which would really revolutionize like the efficiency of like fuel reuse and fuel disposal. Um, which uh, is to say these problems that people have with nuclear energy have by and large been, if not solved, at least improved greatly since <laughs> we got a chance to build the infrastructure for nuclear energy last. Well, and it, it just seems it's such a frustrating topic for me because like, you know, we touched on the whole right left thing, you know, whatever earlier, but like if there's something we ought to all be able to come together on freaking this is it like you want to decrease you know like you want to come at it from geopolitical and defense and and that side uh and be less dependent on oil sweet let's build some nuclear reactors you want to you want to save some some spotted owls um great let's let's build some nuclear reactors and it's you know i think people picture you know uh like the power plant on the simpsons that's not what we're talking about like that hasn't been what anybody's talking about for a long time. And so it's like the reactors are smaller, they're safer, they're more efficient. Like everything's better. You just can't get a permit to, to freaking build one. Right. right. You know, and the amount of liability, like it, it's just so steeped in, in liability that nobody's so, willing to put the money on the line. So people are scared to get behind to build it because of those Chernobyls and the, the one in Japan and all that. Is that why? people are so scared or is there like a political reason more so that we don't want it? Cause that doesn't make sense. Like what you said, Kelly, like if y'all want like less coal and oil, like why are we not making this happen? I don't understand. Um, for if there's public will to do something generally, uh, at least there would be a public discussion and there hasn't really been a public discussion about nuclear energy since the nineties. Um, from my understanding, that seems to be the biggest uh, reason for that is these images of when things go wrong, which is a huge minority of the time, especially compared to other energy um, production uh, methods. Um, beyond that, you know, there's a defense reason that you don't want to produce the majority of your energy through one method. You want to diversify your energy grid and nuclear energy is so efficient that it almost is tempting to put your entire energy into nuclear, um, which we could pretty easily do. Uh, Another point is they create military targets, um, which, you know, you could call an oil rig a military target too. And probably some people do call oil rigs military targets, but, um, yeah, if a, if a core melted down due to like some sort of military bombardment, that would be bad. Um, and finally, uranium, which is which is by and large like the most common uh, nuclear fission fuel, uranium two thirty five. Uh, its natural amounts are limited. There are ways to more uranium fuel and plutonium fuel. Um, but because of regulations that the global polit- political community and treaties that people have signed, 
uh, these things are really hard to do, um, if not impossible right now. <laughs> so eventually thinking if we built a lot of nuclear reactors right now, we would eventually run out of the natural uranium that we can depend on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then we just go like mine an asteroid or something. <laughs> right. Like, doesn't it, uh, what is it? Was it, uh, Saturn where it rains diamonds? Like, <laughs> all these substances are plentiful, just not necessarily easily accessible. All right. We can get our hands on some things. Um, but so our, I, I, I always reverse the two, but our, like the n- nuclear reactors we use now are that's uh fusion. Yeah. Fusion or fission? Fission. Fission. So fusion is the great hope though, right? That's a lot, a lot of my colleagues working on is nuclear fusion. Uh, it's if it were to become a commercial reality, it'd be essentially free forever. Now I've, I've asked you about this before because there's, there's a couple of, of uh, there's a couple of big experiments going on in the world uh, in this one in China, one in one in Europe. Right. And they've kind of both been going back and forth, making some bigger gains. Uh, but I, I've had you explain this to me before and the picture that always ends up in my head is just, Oh, okay. Why didn't you just say doc Ock and Spider-Man? This is really what he was trying to do, right? This is like, this is that, uh, that line of the power of the sun, right? That's really what, like the reaction of the sun is, is fusion. Like that's what's going on, right? That's what we're trying to mimic. Uh, exactly. Right. Uh, in fact, I think they got fusion scientists who work at Columbia university to advise them on that. So, it's honestly like not, not completely terrible <laughs> as far as sci-fi goes. Um, you know, it, it wouldn't be exposed like that and out in the open and you definitely need like a lab coat, but um, <clears throat> there's a couple of methods of producing uh, an analogy. A friend of mine in my PhD program likes to use that I'm going to steal from him is imagine popping a water balloon and holding the water in the shape of the balloon um, forever. And that's what we're trying to do with these, uh, or at least I should say a lot of these um, fusion devices. Uh, with water, it's you can't do that. Uh, you can't do that with your hands. But with plasma, which is the form of matter that the sun is made of, um, the basic premise I'll explain first in one sentence is you take two helium uh two hydrogen atoms rather two hydrogen isotopes and you get them hot enough so that their heat uh vibrations their heat energy is high enough so that they have enough kinetic energy that when they bump into each other uh they don't they don't like bump off each other they have enough energy that when they hit each other they stick they go through their each other's atomic repelling like forces and their nucleus, then they fuse into a helium atom. Um, and then from that, you get this energetic neutron that's popped off. And that is like the energy we're harvesting is from that extra neutron that pops off. Um, but getting that hydrogen hot enough requires it to be in a state of matter called plasma. And plasma reacts to electric and magnetic fields. It's electrically charged, um, so to speak. Uh, that's actually a bad way to describe it, but you can influence behavior of plasma with electric and magnetic fields. Um, and 
there's a couple different uh, forms of doing this uh, that are being experimentally made around the world. Uh, the most pursued one, I would say, is called a tokamak. It's this uh, big Russian device that is like a donut shape with magnets around like the perimeter of the donut that just sort of like guide plasma in a circle. Uh, and the idea is to confine the plasma in this loop, just traveling around really hot, really fast um, without anything going wrong for a long time. Enough time for enough neutrons to bump off, hit a material that heats up and then it boils water. Um, and then that runs your mind. The fact that all of these mess, that everything still just boils down to you. We need to make things really hot. Now, it just doesn't matter how advanced your version of let's generate some energy is. Everything's still just got to get really hot. Right. We're inventing the world's uh, most sophisticated like kettle. <laughs> but it seems like so you're talking about this uh, plasma like it's operating not at temperatures of the sun ho- hotter than than the sun from what I've read about these experiments. Right. Like. It can vary depending on the size and configuration, but you know, the sun is as big as it is. And, uh, the reason it is a stable ball of plasma is because as big as it is, the gravity is strong enough to confine the plasma in that spot. Uh, they are much, we, we don't have the luxury of (laughs) having something as big as the sun in our laboratory. Um, so you need to confine plasma in a smaller space that tends to mean uh very 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 strong magnetic and electric fields that means like very quickly heating it up and in some cases yeah that could mean temperatures exceeding that which might be found in the surface of the sun um but they typically last for the order of less than especially less than a minute um most experiments in these tokamak facilities last maybe second to a couple of seconds right i was gonna say like i see them report quote unquote big gains like get super excited like science world's writing big articles and fancy covers of magazines for gains of like seconds or milliseconds like that's what this is measured in uh right now right and so what's what's so hard like why can't you guys just do it so here's here's my guess the limiting factor right like the the holy grail of energy right is the you know, this, the self-perpetuating engine, right? The engine that will, you know, that's the source that's generating more energy than it's consuming, right? Like that's in all of energy. However you figure out to do that, right? That's, that's the winner. That's when you've got free abundant (laughs) energy, right? So is the challenge in figuring out, um, Oh, here's the challenge. Here's the layman's challenges as I see them. Right. And then you tell me if it's all of the above or, or what the real limiting factor is, right. Of, one, just heating the particles, like generating the plasma, um, right? So I, I, that seems like that would be challenging, though though doable. But maintaining that reaction without the mass of the sun seems like a, a, a challenge to me. Um, but then also then containing it once you've created it, like are we getting more energy out of the plasma we're creating than we're pumping into the system of magnets con- to contain it? Right. Cause that, that has to happen, right? Like it can't take more energy to control it than it's generating. Cause then it's a loser. That's a good point. And that's something that plasma physicists don't want to explain, but here's the dirty secret. Um, the, the terms that they use 
uh, especially um, there was this breakthrough recently at the National Ignition Facility, uh, which is over in California, where they generated 1.3 megajoules of energy uh, and they put in 1.6. So they're uh, uh, 1.6 megajoules of laser light energy. This is a different form of fusion. I, I, I won't go into the mechanisms there, but more your wheelhouse, though, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I tend to rub shoulders a little more with these people. Um, they got about 60%, a little more than that, uh, around 60% of the energy of laser light they put into the target uh, out in terms of like fusion energy that they measured. Um, the goal is to get more than that. But the thing they're not telling you is that they're measuring this 1.6 megajoules of energy of laser light, uh, not taking into account the things like the lasers are not perfectly efficient. Uh, you need a cooling system. You need electricity to run like the auxiliary systems and like running a power plant costs energy too. Uh, so wall plug efficiency, which uh, plasma physicists have not been using because it's First, we need to get break-even, which is just like the term to describe the energy that purely went into the reaction. Are we getting more energy out of the reaction than that? We're getting close to that threshold. Uh, the wall plug efficiency standard, though, uh, we are not there yet. <laughs> uh, the hope is uh, there's this big project in France, this multinational project called ITER, uh, which there's been improvements to the design of the tokamak, but essentially what they're doing is building it up to a massive scale, uh, a scale that no country could do on their own. And this helps with the containment issues and the confinement issues a little bit to the point that it should theoretically uh, confine and burn and get hot enough for a long enough period of time to produce more neutron energy than actually goes in from the wall plug. Uh, I doubt, I have my doubts, I'll say. I don't doubt the scientists working on it, but I have my doubts that the measurements that we'll see in the first maybe five or 10 years after it opens will reach that point. But, uh, you know, maybe in our lifetime, we'll get to the point where even if it's not commercial, we'll probably see a fusion reaction that uh, reliably makes that break-even threshold and maybe in our lifetime we'll approach that it makes more energy than you put in period that would be nice is the is it is it the correct terminology to call the that a reactor yes yeah so is that is that the same style of reactor that china's working on or are they working on it from a different angle uh, China is working on a few different types. Uh, a lot of countries are working on a few different types. Uh, from my understanding, uh, I don't want to say anything wrong, but I China is working on a tokamak facility, which is supposed to be very large. Uh, they're working on a stellarator, I think. I think so, a stellarator, which is the original engine. Uh, design invented at Princeton University. Instead of a donut shape, uh, the plasma follows this orbit that is not just like around in a circle in the donut, uh, magnetic confined. It sort of like twists within the donut orbit. And the stellarator is basically like instead of building 
a donut shape and making it twist inside it, why not build the reactor that twists with it? So it should theoretically be easier for the geometry to follow the plasma. Uh, I believe they're working on one of those two. Um, neither of these designs have gotten to that break-even threshold yet. You need to sustain the reaction. You need to get it to be self-sustaining so that the energy is uh, it's producing is enough to keep itself on that. Uh, we've gotten there a few times, but beyond that, you need it going for long enough periods of time to get enough neutrons out of it, enough energy on the energy you're putting in. We haven't gotten there yet. I, I do want to say just as a, a caveat, as you mentioned that you didn't want to state anything that was incorrect at this point, we can literally say anything about China we want to on this podcast. We will not get fat chat, fact checked, and I'll tell you why. Had uh, in a, well, I'll say in a quick. I'm going to be very vague here, very intentionally, because uh, you know brutal regimes do brutal regime things. Uh, but an acquaintance who uh, may or may not be in China sometimes uh, was asking me about the podcast. He's like, "Where are you guys at? Where can I find you?" I'm like, "Well, we're on." I'm like, you can hit our website and there's some links there. I'm like, well, we're, we're on all the, the normal podcast apps, streams, whatever. He's like, yeah, I was afraid you were going to say that. I checked like, you're not listed here anywhere. You must be blocked in China, which is, which is awesome. If I'm being honest, it's one of the <laughs> proudest moments in my life. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'll, and I'll take a second to separate the Chinese government from like Chinese, uh, people <laughs> hey we 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 regularly make that distinction here at jason you be proud a matter of fact uh you know i've i clearly delineated that yes while i do actively hope for most chinese rockets to fail um i don't hope that when they're manned i'm not a monster <laughs> that's nice you go <laughs> i do what i can well hey listen you know what when you uh you know kind of suck as a government in general but then we want to narrow it down to their space program, which we take interest in such things here occasionally on the Solid 7 podcast. Hey, maybe just don't like randomly, uh, you know, lob your spent rockets into, I don't know, say the moon or uh, don't let them uh, make uncontrolled returns to Earth. Maybe just don't do that. You know, isn't like the politics of like space stuff interesting? That's a problem that. I don't know. Try explaining that to like Socrates. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. but it, it's, it's still like, you know, so much of philosophy just boils down to how we deal with and interact and value each other. Right. Like that's the root of, of all of these things. Uh, if we, if we may uh, wax poetic here for a moment and the reality, the problem is, um, you know, it's just, um, you know, right, wrong or, or otherwise there, there's some political beliefs in China right now that I take issue with, but then of course there's historical differences, right. Too. But, um, the, the, the challenge is right. When you have a billion people, you're going to have to work real hard not to value life less, right? Anything there's more of tends to have less value. Uh, right. Like, uh, I wish there were less U.S. dollars in circulation right now. I think we all do as we're uh, <laughs> uh, experiencing uh, the, the pains and joys of uh, of inflation. Right. So it's just and the problem is when you're a spacefaring nation, like your decreased lack of concern, your decreased sense of value for human life, uh, it affects the rest of us. If you want to lob your rockets over our heads. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even, but you see it even in, you know, Russia's space program is, you know, arguably the, the oldest. I mean, it depends on what you want to count, right? Uh, manned or, you know, certainly, you know, had the first man in space, whatever. But like Russian rockets right now, Russian rockets don't have an abort system built in. So like my four-year-old, there's this great rocket fails video, all unmanned from everyday astronaut that he loved to watch. And there's, I can't, it was a, a Russian proton rocket. So not, um, not the Soyuz rockets that we're all kind of used to seeing protons a little different and arguably a little more, uh, um, modern looking, but I can't remember what failed on this rocket. But the second it leads the pad, you kind of see it start to veer and then you you see the thrust vectoring, you see the engines gimbling, and it starts to veer the other way. And it's just one of those things, like you see it in auto accidents, like you fishtail a little bit and you overcorrect and you overcorrect. And so this thing ends up just like nosing over. I mean, it's at several hundred meters. This is not like it hadn't gained a lot of altitude, which means it's also still full of fuel. And so oh, yeah. this thing just noses over into the ground. And this is Russia, man. I'm not saying people are watching from like at the launch pad because evidently it would explode your heart or something. Um, but uh, like they're close, like people are watching from close. And like there's videos of people watching this thing blow up and then their windows on their apartment or house are blowing out. But it was if you if that was a launch in the US, like there would have been an auto destruct thing. A, it probably would have auto destructed itself, but if not a range safety officer, the second it was that far off car course, would you know, would have hit the bye bye button. And Russia's just like, no, we don't we don't need that. We don't believe in that. Uh Especially, I'm not sure when this happened, but especially early on, um, especially the countries that were developing their space programs uh, outside the United States, even the United States to some degree, really like recycling their uh, rocket parts. They're very expensive. Oh, yeah. Um, so if you if you can like keep it in a harvestable state, possible, yeah, that's of interest. Well, they... Um... One of the the explosions that's on that video had to uh, Tim Dodd, everyday astronaut, is of, and a lot of people, particularly Americans, don't know this. Russia built a moon rocket. They built a competitor to the Saturn V. It was the N1, and this thing was massive. It had, I want to say, thirty one engines on the bottom. Uh, and you're thinking this is at the same time, right? We're talking in the 60s. They're trying to launch this thing. It's a very, very Russian looking rocket. And they tried to launch. I can't remember if it was two or three times. And their first launch was actually for a first launch of something that complicated. It exploded. It had a, you know, a, a rapid un, unscheduled disassembly. Um, <laughs> but it was pretty successful for what it was. It gained a lot of altitude. But the second one, like. One engine cut out right at launch, so then they were designed to automatically cut the parallel engine off on the opposite side, and just multiple failures in this thing. It was, I, I think, if Tim's uh, video is accurate, it it's still like to this day like the the largest non nuclear man made explosion in history. Like burning fuel rained down on the launch complex for like an hour and a half. I don't doubt that. Yeah. Um, rocket fuel is nasty stuff and like highly, highly combustible. Well, and they're big fans of using hypergolics over there. So there's no, um, there's no ignition source, right? Like you're not applying, uh, you know, spark or heat. It's hypergolics is like two fluids mix and spontaneously combust. 
Right. Um, so you wouldn't use that to fuel your whole rocket, but you'll use that for like a startup. But they're notoriously, we still use hypergolics for some stuff like uh, small thrusters and, and things like that. But they're they're really they're it's nasty stuff. I mean they're they're corrosive and it's bad for you. Like you don't want to be around hypergolics. And but what was crazy? They had these. Um, they built all these engines for these things. I can't remember the style of engine, um, but they couldn't test them. They could they couldn't be fired because they used like explosive valves or something. So you could only run them once. So they would run tests out of every batch. But so they're launching this giant moon rocket with 31 engines on the bottom of it in the freaking 60s with like Soviet era computers. And uh, like the engines hadn't been tested. It's like, just hook them up and let's see how it goes. Let's, <laughs> let's, who wants to sit on top of this thing? Unbelievable. So, yeah, different, uh, different value sets over there uh, in the east. For sure. The, I, I will say, especially as someone who studies the topic of plasma physics, which has uh, really deep roots in Russian plasma physics who have made leaps and bounds in the field, uh, the language of math and physics trans cultures and languages. <laughs> Uh, when they're right about science, they're right about science. And uh, that has been true, especially in like China for millennia. <laughs> they have been far ahead of us in science up until like, I don't know, a couple hundred years ago. And you could probably still make an argument that they're ahead of us in a lot of different scientific methods like or areas these days. So to that fact, if uh, it is in probably America's interest to get kids interested in things like science early on. Uh, as a scientist, I'll say uh, we need a new generation of like uh, interested and informed next generation scientists. What if I can ask you guys was like the coolest scientific fact. It can be like an experiment you learned about or like a fun fact or something you learned in a classroom, or even something you learned on your own. What is the thing that like connected you to, it didn't have to be physics, but like any science the most? Uh, Man, could I'm, be in childhood, could be in adulthood. I don't know. It's a, that's a solid question. Like I certainly have, uh, you know, I'm um, old enough to, to remember watching and enjoying Mr. Wizard. You know, like before there was Bill Nye, there was Mr. Wizard. Uh, and it was the same kind of stick dude with the kids TV show and, and doing experiments and it was repeatable stuff and it was very accessible though. I, I don't remember any of the specifics of it. I really don't except for one time I saw him do something with a needle and the thread and the way he poked it through a banana different ways and pulled it out. When you peeled the banana, everything inside was sliced, even though the peel wasn't, that was well. pretty, that was pretty dope. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, like, I was, uh, you know, in an age gap where like Bill Nye's original show before, uh, he, be, I mean, for, for my money, before he became obnoxious, I loved watching his, uh, his, you know, his old Bill Nye, the science guy show, um, hashtag Bill Nye's not a scientist, but, um, <laughs> I hey, mean, I'm I, getting an engineering degree too. I was you about watch to say, I guess this is the, the wrong crowd to, to knock. I'll say <laughs> Bill, Bill's a smart guy. He's an accomplished guy. He's not, he's not what he allows people to believe he is. How about that? 
How about <laughs> that? Um, but I don't know. You know, I remember you know, it, it was the fun stuff that kind of um, captured the imagination, right? So a lot of the stuff that actually stuck with me from, uh, you know, I didn't do a, a ton. You know, I, I did like some biology courses and like biology for non-science majors and stuff uh, post high school. But um, so most of the reference for me would be high school stuff where it's like the things that were fun or what stood out, right? Not even necessarily directly applicable. So a lot of the things that stuck with me were actually things from safety demonstrations, you know, like, uh, you know, when the, uh, you know, when our, our AP chem teacher would like blow bubbles into some, you know, viscous flammable fluid and then, you know, light the bubbles on fire or, uh, you know, had a teacher like just use a, this is in the days of overhead cause hashtag old, you know, like putting a transparency on the overhead and just putting some colored dye by the edge of it and watching the water suck itself under so that you understood why you needed to wear glasses and not contacts to, for chemistry labs, mm. um, playing with swink slinkies to understand, uh, you know, wave mechanics, uh, was always fun. Like the giant oversized slinkies, but then also, um, I always loved getting my hands on, gosh, what material was it? Um, we had little strips of, it might've been, does magnesium burn really bright? I believe it does. Yeah. Yeah. We had magnesium strips in our classroom, uh, and, and the teacher would try and keep them locked down and hidden. And I was particularly adept at finding them. <laughs> and so I would stick small pieces, hold small pieces in the Bunsen burner and the uh, classroom would light up like somebody was welding. And uh, she didn't have to look. She'd just yell out my name. Like, sorry. (laughs) My turn? Yeah. Uh, I like the Carl Sagan videos when he, like, debunked. Oh, hell yeah. um, When he debunked the... uh, I just saw it again the other day online. The the Alexandria where they tested the poles and the curvature of the Earth, and he had, like, that paper... And then he had the two poles on it and then he like he bent it and they like measured the shadows at the same time and how he explained this is how the world is curved. Uh, <laughs> even before like um, uh, the flat earthers have taken over today. I just saw that video the other day and I'm like, yeah, I remember seeing those back in the day and they were dope. Carl Sagan is a uh, is a good answer. Those who would probably say Carl Sagan is Neil deGrasse Tyson. So you're yeah. in good company. I would I would want to listen to Carl Sagan more than Neil deGrasse. I like Neil deGrasse, but I would if I had a pick, I would choose Carl. I think Carl Sagan is a legend. I'd be I'd be interested to hear your take, Jason. Like I think, um, like I I feel like Sagan was a, a better. He was a phenomenal communicator, but I feel like between the two, he's the better scientist, and deGrasse Tyson's the better communicator. That's a, I would agree with that. I think I would agree with that. You know, if you watch those old um, Carl Sagan videos, oh, what's the name of the show? Uh, shoot, what was the name of the show? Cosmos? Oh, yeah, 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 Cosmos, of course. Um, actually, both him and Neil deGrasse Tyson have done Cosmos. Yeah, so. yeah it was a, it was a <laughs> reboot. Look at the two, but uh, Carl Sagan is a little bit like monotone in his presentation and like the dude is a professor, so he just sort of like in an interesting way as he can visually show stuff on television, I just sort of lecturing. But 
Uh, Carl Sagan was, yeah, a pretty respectable physicist. Um, and so is Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's the head of the Planetary Society. Um, but he hasn't been a professor in a long time, to my knowledge. and yeah. doesn't have an active research lab where Carl Sagan was researching for a long time to his public relations career. Um, I think I would agree with that. Although Neil deGrasse Tyson is a very smart guy. Yeah. Well, and I, I know I won't contest that he can, he can be a little polarizing for, for very funny reasons. Like, you know, when he's correcting the science in movies, it hacks some people off and stuff like that. And, you know, politically some people can take some issue, but he's just such a compelling orator. Like he is like, yeah. I've never heard him and not been uh, engaged and, and drawn in and, and interested regardless of what, like, uh, and maybe you can touch on this some here though. I mean, I, I understand that what I'm asking here is, can you make this more understandable than Neil deGrasse Tyson did? So my apologies for that, but like him on Joe Rogan, trying to explain that there's more than one infinity. Um, I, I love this. I say, I say <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> It's infinity, bro. There's one infinity. Uh, th- so the, uh, <laughs> there's more than one infinity, Kale. Oh, how dare you, sir? <laughs> uh, there's types. There's bounded and unbounded. The space between one and two, uh, if you go into like decimal land, is technically infinite. And in fact, the space between uh, one and point five, or sorry, one and one point five, is also infinite but the space between one and two is bigger. So that's a bigger infinity than the space between one and 1.5. They're both infinite. And then you have uncountable infinities, unbounded infinities, uh, the space between and the last number that you can count to. Uh, That's an uncountable infinity, uh, which is smaller than the uncountable infinity from the negative number you can count to most to the positive number you can count to most. So zero to the positive really large, but still smaller than this other type of infinity. Um, but this feels like you're picking out different segments of the same infinity and just calling them different infinities. Um, now you're getting philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> Do numbers exist? So the concept of infinity if if numbers don't truly exist, then I guess the concept of infinity doesn't truly exist. But as a mathematical sort of construct, there is a difference uh, when you get to a certain point just functionally between an uncountable infinity and how it behaves in mathematics to a bounded infinity, a countable infinity. Um. I won't go much more into that. So there are different infinities um, and there are bigger and smaller infinities and it all depends on sort of a, the domain and B the restrictions you have on what you're accounting in your space <laughs> and like also operations and how numbers work in your space um, In higher level mathematics. There's, Algebra is a term that no longer means the subject you studied in high school. It means like uh, a set of operators and numbers that exist uh, that have relations with one another that mathematic that mathematicians define. Um, depending on your algebra, you can also have these different like super exotic infinities. Um, <clears throat> but yes, 
there's there's several types of infinities and no infinity is quite like the other see it's times like this that i feel like you science people are just like no we'll just just make some crap up to confuse them just no that's <laughs> just just throw it out there so no, but I I really like we sidetracked there a little bit because the infinities thing always stuck with me. But um, so yeah, I I like Neil. He's really compelling. I really like to and Jason. I have you correct me on his name every time. But he's probably the other most prominent physicist scientist in the public eye right now. Is is it Michio Ukaku? Michio Kaku is that how I think it's called? Michio Kaku. It's, I mean, if you watch anything on like space physics, like all these documentaries, like he, he, like if it's not a one host kind of thing, he pops up uh, <laughs> and he's a pretty good, like he's a great communicator too, but it's totally different. Like it's, I don't find him as compelling as Neil deGrasse Tyson. Cause the way he talks, I don't believe his answers are canned, but it feels like his answers are canned. It feels like I've answered this question so many times. I've got this answer down. But then he's still just really interesting and, and somewhat controversial, right? Because he's, um, you know, as if my brain's not already broken enough from all these infinities. He's a string theory guy, uh, I think. Yes, that's that's correct. And, um, and well, and correct me on the terminology. Like, what's what's the holy grail of of, of physics? What's the grand unifying uh, whatever? Grand unified theory, right? Like it's the the explanation of everything, right? Like it's the, I I mean, you could make a case. uh, I I would, uh, I'm not going to, that's too sacrilegious for me, but I mean, you could compare the the concept of grand unified theory to to God almost. Right. But it's like all of science, all of the way the entire universe works would fit into because certain things right now don't fit into general relativity. Don't fit into special relativity. Uh, and so I don't, what do you guys do with that right now? You just pretend it doesn't exist or you let guys like him run around talking about everything being little <laughs> vibrating strings. Um, a good question. Uh, pretending it doesn't exist is the nicest thing that I can do as someone who doesn't study things like dark matter. But, um, of course it, ex- uh, those problems exist. Uh, the standard model, which is like the most complete model of the universe that we have, uh, does not describe the universe uh, to 100% accuracy. Uh, the rate of like increase in speed in uh, the universe's expansion is increasing. There's not a really good description why we're measuring an increase in this speed of expansion. Um, as well as there's like gravity that we can measure the effects of in distant galaxies and like interstellar space that we cannot detect like matter like there are orbits that we detect of like distant stars for example that don't seem to completely match what our calculations say they should their orbits should be um so that spawn these things like anomalous matter and dark matter and dark energy uh which are really just ways of saying that we don't know why that's happening um like general relativity and quantum mechanics, the two umbrellas of those don't have descriptions for why that would be happening. Um, a grand unified theory hopefully would encapsulate that. <laughs> uh, those are the big things like scientists point to right now to say 
these are the answers that these cosmological answers when we answer them we'll have what we think are the missing puzzle pieces universe in all likelihood if we figure out what is going on there it'll open up a hundred more questions <laughs> it just i mean it just starts to sound like uh you know like phase four marvel universe is really what's going what's going on here <laughs> i want to say the last time i i listened to an interview with him he was also getting into like i think i think i don't want to put words in the in the dude's mouth but i'm pretty sure he's pretty big on like were you to to pass through the event horizon of a black hole if you could do that you'd pop out into another universe on the other side that all black holes are wormholes or gateways to other universes but i you know you touched on it some like the expansion of the universe i i think that's kind of out there in the the ether i think there's maybe some like maybe not a layman's understanding of that, but just kind of this, this knowledge that the universe is expanding. I think just kind of in the, in the zeitgeist, I think in general, I mean, not everybody you would like, if you didn't man on the street, a lot of people would, would look at you dumb, but I think that's kind of out there. But I read an article, which you'd reference the, that this is happening, not that article just now about the rate of expansion increasing, uh, which I think we've had a discussion about this strikes me as counterintuitive, right? Like if, you you would at least for me i would expect like if you uh you know if you floor your car and let your foot off the gas uh all other things being equal like it's gonna slow down it's not gonna keep speeding up because if there's no force acting on it so it would seem to indicate that there is some force acting on essentially everything in the universe to increase the rate of speed but the article that i read that was mind-boggling is that light travels at a particular speed. Like it light goes so fast. Mm -hmm. So as things in the galaxy uh, move away from us, as they start to move at a rate that's faster than the speed of light, the light from that thing can't ever get to us. It'll move past, uh, it, it's, I'm, I'm probably misusing the scientific term, but past an event horizon. So there, there's a thing, there, there are things in the galaxy, there are things in the universe. I'm, I said I'm galaxy, but I meant universe because I don't think this applies to the galaxy anytime soon. Um, but there's things in the universe that we, we can see the light from right now that at some point that light's going to shut off and we're never going to see it again. Can't, that light can't move towards us as fast as it's moving away from us. Um, this effect is measured, but, uh, I don't, I, I won't have a 100% under this. So, um, uh, don't take my explanation here as like the Holy grail or the 100% truth. But from what I understand from reading about this, um, the sentence you said was that things are moving away from us faster than the speed of light. So that light can never really catch up to uh, the speed in which they're traveling away from us to reach us. Um, I think that is not fully true, but from what the observable effects of what is happening is kind of functionally true. Um, I'll try and explain that. Things are not physically traveling faster than light from our frame of reference. Um, even if they're close, which generally I think these objects are not actually traveling like close to the speed of light, maybe at most 0.1 times the speed of light. Um, they're so far away from us that the uh, 
my understanding, this might be a little bit of a hand wavy explanation that might be slightly incorrect, but my understanding of the expansion of space in the universe is that actual space time, the thing we we're talking about at the beginning of this discussion with general relativity, uh, that's part of the expansion. Space time itself is expanding. Uh, th so the thing that like those objects are in is ex is is expanding itself that's really hard to like visualize and i i gotta say i i can't fully what 100 percent visualize it myself but uh that's why they pay like those cosmologists physicists the big bucks um but so the the fabric of space the medium in which things exist itself isn't like static it's growing it's expanding and for an observable reason the further you are away from like a certain observation point we're on earth so we can call earth the observation point uh the expansion of the objects in the universe on top of the expansion of the fabric of the universe kind of like compounds get to a point where you're further enough for uh far enough away that these effects begin to compound on top of each other to the effect of making it look like these things are traveling faster than light. And in fact, it does sort of have that effect that light doesn't reach us in the amount of time that we'd expect an object emitting light at that distance would reach us. Uh, but this radius in which we are receiving light from the universe uh, is expanding all the time. So we have like an edge of the observable universe, as it's called. Um, and this is technically, I think, the rate of, of the observable universe is decreasing with the increase in the growth of space-time. is growing as the universe expands quicker and quicker. Um, Sorry if that was wrong, but I believe that's right. <laughs> we we wouldn't know if it was. Once again, you can literally say whatever you want to us. <laughs> uh, I'm fact checking myself. They teach you in uh, in science school to be careful about what you say. Um, Fair, because uh, you don't want your professor looking like he taught you something wrong. Doctor um, Fauci was sick that day of science school. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's it's like a sect. Basically, what you're saying, yes, it does appear at some point far away from us. Things are quicker than the speed of light away from us. But uh, this is basically accounted for by, no, Einstein is not wrong. Things can't move faster than light. It's just this uh, observed effect of time uh, expanding away from us. And the further and further you get, that's sort of like compounds. So light is still traveling at the speed of light. Those objects are still traveling at, say, much less than the speed of light. Um, it's just these sort of like space-time related effects of the expansion of the universe that causes a red shift in light. So say blue light was emitted, and when it reaches us, it'll be red. Um, and also uh, this sort of like pile-up of light that can reach us at any given time. So it's uh, is something like James Webb, which we've talked about on here, which still just 
boggling my mind. We don't need to do a, a big James Webb breakdown, but it's NASA's new big uh, bad boy telescope. And everything about this thing is unbelievable. The way it's built, the way it works, the science that went into it, everything down to its orbit, orbiting at Lagrange point one and the way that that orbit works, it, it all is just mind boggling. Uh, and I've been keeping up with this thing. You know, it's like a six month process. Um, once now that it's out at its orbit of letting it, the, the parts of it that are supposed to be very, very cold, get as cold as they're supposed to be. And the things that are parts of it, uh, you know, that are sun facing, uh, get as hot as they're supposed to be. Cause these things are all designed to work at very specific temperatures. Um, but so they're working on focusing all the mirrors on this thing and everything's, I just keep waiting for the other shoe to drop. Right. Cause you're thinking like, you know, Hubble, clearly they're going to have forgotten or screwed up something, you know, per our conversation earlier, but they've just been knocking out of the park. And this is kind of what something like uh web is designed to kind of see through. If I can put it very, very crudely, right? Like it's, it it's designed with things like that light shift phase. Again, I'm probably saying the wrong words, but um, you know, being admitted as blue light, getting to us as red light, like it's built with those things in mind and really sent meant not only to see farther than we've ever seen before, but in ways we haven't seen before. And I just feel like there's going to be some really, really cool science to come out of that thing. Once it's, it's really up and running. Uh, that's right. Scientists who work in this are pretty smart. Um, uh, I believe that they measure infrared light on the James Webb telescope and they are looking very, very far away, or, or I should say like a very small like arc distance for like the angular region of space. Oh, they measure that it's the language they use. Um, essentially, it means they're looking extremely far away, just even bounds and orders of magnitude beyond what Hubble was capable of doing. The reason they're looking at infrared light uh, is because partially of this red shift of, um, of light emitted from distant objects reaching us. Uh, also, universes closer by also do emit infrared light that's interesting to possibly look at but that's right these distant objects that james webb is hoping to look at and sort of probe into uh it will have red shifted by the time it reaches us and maybe what used to be ultraviolet light is now infrared light and we're hoping to see this sort of like dominant wavelength in these objects in space far enough away within this like lower frequency band um yeah, the scientists who worked in James Weber, they counted on everything. Yeah. Uh, it's really impressive. It's it's been awesome to to watch. It's it's really impressive um, science and and engineering and I mean everything down to like worksmanship and and tradesmen, right? Like a lot of times on things like this, or you're looking at like right now uh, down here in Florida, we've got NASA's new big moon rocket sitting out on a pad for, for wet dress rehearsal right now, the the SLS, but, and yes, lots of, lots of, of big brains and big degrees go into building things like that. But somewhere there was a welder too. Right. And so just, oh, yeah. uh, just all, all the way around, right. Just everybody that's been involved in that James Webb project, uh, up to, and including, um, like one of the companies that's worked on, on, uh, SLS, um, United launch Alliance, which is a, a, a common, a team up between, uh, it's Lockheed and, um, 
somebody else, whatever. It doesn't, doesn't matter, man. Like part of why James Webb is in such great shape is like, they just nailed the orbit on the thing. Like they just nailed the, the launch. It's just cool. Like, kudos to, to all of them all the way around. But bef- before we wrap Jason, I, I did have uh, one uh, other listener question, science question to run by you. And then I just wanted to talk uh, uh, real quick about all the, like the crazy intricacies that make time travel difficult, if not impossible that we talked about a few months ago over the, over the phone. Uh, but the other science question that our listener had for you, uh, and you're going to think I'm joking, but it was submitted is um, what is a woman I'm, uh, I'm, I'm kidding. You don't have to answer. You should be able to. You should be able to, but you don't have to answer. It was submitted, but... Uh, Scientists have been trying to answer this question for millennia, which no, no, probably no. speaks more to the issue and gender equality in sciences over the ages. But <laughs> uh, I think the struggle has been, how does a woman's brain work? Not what is a woman. I, we've, we've been clear on the on the latter for, for some time up until recently, but, <laughs> but you, don't, you don't have to chime in. I, I'm not looking to get you in any trouble there. But so, uh, you know, uh, especially uh, like if you've watched uh, recently watched uh, the Adam Project, it was a good time. I didn't I didn't hate it. Uh, but even you go uh, back to, uh, you know, movies love time travel, right? Back to the Futures, It's a classic series. Right. And so but even even it presents right like the first time Marty jumps back in time. Right. It's not a parking lot anymore. He's in, he's in a barn. Right. Because the spot he landed like it wasn't in the same condition as when he left it. Um, mm-hmm. But the other things and that makes sense to us. Right. would be like so already that's a challenge. Like, well, I've, you've got to go to at the very least, I've got to go to a known time and point in time so that I know what was there. Right. Like maybe I can find an old map or old drawings and I can know that I'm not going to like rematerialize in a in a rock somewhere. OK, fair enough. But the problem is, uh, the, and these aren't my own thoughts, Jason, help me stumble on this. So correct me if I get any of this wrong, but like, it's not just that, like the condition of that patch of, of earth was different in the time that you're traveling to a, I, like, I think it's probably a bad idea other than maybe a few minutes to travel into the future at all, because you don't know how infrastructure has changed, uh, <laughs> let alone shape of shape of the earth. Like you've got no way to know that one. But if you're going back in time, like you can't just know, okay, well, that was a tree farm then and I might end up in the barn. So like the earth's spinning. So you got to know where in the rotation you've got to like your coordinates have to include where, where, where you're wanting to go on earth. Where was it in the rotation at the time? Okay. So that's a little more complicated than just where do I want to be and what time do I want to be? Where's that at in the earth's rotation? But then of course the earth's not just spinning. It's also orbiting the sun. Okay, so where was it at in its orbit around the sun uh, and then in its rotation? And then was was there a, a building or, or anything where I want to go? Okay, but the sun's not stationary in space. And then our <laughs> galaxy is not stationary in space. So you've got to do the math to figure out you, you've got to plot all these different points of like, where was our unit? Where, where was our galaxy in space time in the universe? 
where was our solar system in its circling of the of our giant black hole at the center of our galaxy so where was the earth in its orbit where was it in its rotation and then maybe if you've managed to plot all those you might not materialize inside of a t-rex when you pop out (laughs) uh right right um right you pretty much nail on the head and then uh well uh josh can you think of any other problems <laughs> present in like the hollywood aspect of time travel can you poke any holes in that i'll say ryan reynolds made it look very easy <laughs> i can't think of a time what's another time travel movie off the top of your head well start we go back to interstellar star like, trek's done how a is couple he of times. viewing it in that what did they call it? Start with the C. Uh, when he was viewing Murph as a girl and then growing up all through the years, like that was like not even like remotely believable. But like, is there a movie that does time travel that's like, ah, it's plausible? Uh, to my movies that I have seen. No. <laughs> no. I mean, so, I think Interstellar, I think where they've took leeway with their science was is, that one part is the, the end, black right? hole, right? Like nobody know, like we don't know that we, that we know. We have a pretty good idea of what would happen. You'd basically turn into a spaghetti noodle. Oh, uh, right. Spaghettification is like the actual term. Um, I like so my term better. Right on. <laughs> um, beyond the event horizon we don't have physics that really describes what goes on it could be like you pop into four-dimensional space uh who knows what that is or it could be like another bubble universe or something like this really any description is fantastical and really nonsensical as back something up um anyway for space for time travel rather on the head kale from our discussion you basically also have to master like instantaneous space travel because uh everything in space is moving all the time and a question that is subtle but like super important to this is what is the reference frame of the universe you say the sun is moving in space. That's true. And you say earth is revolving around and you say it's spinning. Um, the Milky way galaxy is also not stationary. It's moving in space and you know, cosmology says space time is accelerating all the time and not constant either. So what is like when you say the sun is at this position, what are you saying that's that position relative to when you say it's that position uh x equals 300 y equals 200 z equals one what are those in units relative to what point and i don't think the universe has a singular reference point so this kind of is like the frame of reference of instantaneous space and time travel i don't think the universe well maybe i'm wrong the universe does have a preferential like point 
that you know whatever whatever deity you believe in sits in the middle of the universe and says this is the reference point of the universe but um, i mean even for science's deity of the big bang like that i would layman's understanding that i concept would lend itself to there's got to be some central point to that um that's yeah that is true um and in fact the point was infinitesimally small but then infinitesimally grew at a speed and temperature so chaotic that i think uh there's a rough idea of the central like direction and central area and where the big bang might have occurred um I don't know there's a point. Maybe there's a point. Um, I'm not a cosmologist, so I can't like speak as an authority. But um, so, okay, that's one problem is the frame of reference of the universe. So say, you know, point of the Big Bang is the center of the universe and you were, have that worked out and you know it's going to be correct in your like calculations for where you end up. You've tracked the motion of Earth throughout uh, from the 1800s farm country to like whatever the 1970s <laughs> for back to the future um now here's another problem instantaneous time travel so you are in one time and then you are the next moment in a different time if einstein's description of space time is to believe uh, is to be believed in that space is really just the fourth dimension of like this interwoven space time and every point in space and every point in time have these different but related um, rates of like curvature and rates of like time rate relative to other points in space. Um, really, you cannot instantaneously move to a different point in space. Uh, time rather without also mastering the art of moving to a different point in space because space and time are kind of the same thing in this description so my argument is in order for time travel we must first invent teleportation <laughs> now we have two problems <laughs> but listen somewhere there's some nerd that making sure that's making sure the clocks are right on satellites and somewhere there's another nerd messing with quantum entangled particles and we are teleporting a little bit. So maybe, maybe someday. Those nerds just need to have a baby. That'll be a super nerd of things. There it is. We can make it happen. (laughs) and that my friends and maybe maybe it started here maybe somebody listening to the solid seven podcast will will sire that nerd (laughs) but everyone listening who made it this far you can party trick next time time travel comes up at your next dinner party which it always does um tell them it's teleportation and don't explain it beyond that <laughs> yeah let them, let them figure it out Just blow their minds same thing so well dude thanks for for coming and making us feel dumb <laughs> thank you guys it's for having always, me and uh you know talking about these things really hard to understand makes me feel dumb too that's a universal <laughs> truth but i appreciate feeling dumb with you guys
Yay, verily. No, it's fun. Now, I mean, we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, I, I don't know, reality television or something next week, maybe and uh, lighten it up. But I, I don't know. This stuff's fun. Like there's uh there's something I think inherently human about just trying to figure out what the heck is going on uh, around us. Right. It's, uh, you know, well, like what, what you do, what your colleagues do. It's, uh, it's exploration. You're not in a ship, but it's, it's the, it's this, you know, it's a different vehicle of transportation, but it's the same thing, right? It's, we left the cave and we, we wanted to know what was over the hill. And after that, we wanted to know what was across the ocean. And, uh, so some, uh, some of that exploration looks out, some of it looks in and, uh, you know, it's all, it's all interesting. It's a, it's a good time. So next chance, anyone listening gets a chance to go outside at night and look up at the scar, uh, stars. That's really, uh, the origins of science. So if I can if I can leave you with anything here, next chance you get, go look at the stars. And then Jason will shoot a laser at him. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, thanks, dude. We'll uh, for sure we'll we'll pile up some more science questions, and the next time we have a, a quasi intelligent question to ask, uh, we'll we'll have you back on if if you're game for it. So, uh, Josh and Kale, your questions are always intelligent so well listeners we uh we thank you for sticking with us hopefully you learned something or if you didn't hey you're you're in good in good company maybe you learned it by osmosis but uh thanks for listening josh you got you got a word you got a word for the people you gotta drop some knowledge on them got nothing i figured you'd you'd give some some factoid some no i'm uh, saving that for jason he's he's smarter than I will ever be. And I commend you, sir. I would have just gone it's a different tough. direction. Like, you know what the Japanese word for dog is. Um, <laughs> but that's, you just got to take it into your own wheelhouse. But listeners, we love you. We mean it. If you haven't already, uh, of course, as always, please uh, subscribe and follow the podcast. Give us the old thumbs up, the old five stars, a little a little review. Every little bit helps. Visit the website, solid7podcast.com. Solid, the number seven podcast.com. Where you'll always find links to our latest episodes, this one included, but you've already heard this one, but you'll be able to find the next one there too. But our affiliate links are there. So you can hit up GoRuck, you can hit up Jocko Fuel and uh, get yourself uh, not only some quality products that will make you better, stronger, harder, faster, smarter. Did I already say smarter? It hasn't worked on me yet, but it'll work on you. But uh, hit up GoRuck, hit up Jocko Fuel, and uh, all the purchases you make uh, on both those will help support the podcast. If you're on Jocko Fuel, even even get a little discount, a little promo code, little solid seven S O L I D seven on uh, Origin Main or Jocko Fuel, both of which you can get to from the website. We get you ten percent off, which is not not nothing. It's not an infinity, but it's not nothing. And somewhere between that nothing and infinity, there's other infinities. And we learned that all today. There's always <laughs> some good causes to support there. You can find links to our social media there. Uh, and if you're, you're just really feeling the love, you can find our Patreon there and become a Patreon supporter as well and help make it all happen. Gents, it's been real. It's been fun. And it has, in fact, been real fun. And uh, Amen. Until next Thank time. Thank you both for having me on. It was really fun. Appreciate it, Good brother. See you again sometime. Bye. 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 Bye.